with the idea of sending folks or, you know, maybe sometimes it's the people who get really nervous around church budgets and things like that. We talk around like, is this the best way to use money? Should we do finances this way? Or why do we do the sending? Why do we send so many people? Those, those kinds of things. And, um, you know, there's a couple of easy answers to that. Uh, the first one is God says so, right? So if you're willing to make the shift between saying, like, Jesus saved me, which is an important confession, but the, the, the real sacred confession of faith is not that just that he saved me, but that he's also Lord, right? And if Jesus is Lord over our lives, when he tells us to do something, we do it. That's just kind of the way it is. So he says, go and make disciples. So we send people. Um, at the same time, when we come to the scriptures, so that's kind of black and white. It says so. When you read the Bible and try to say, what does, what does this story that is the Bible tell us about what God is like? One of the inescapable realities that you'll see is that uh, no one is more interested in or more excited about or more committed to freedom than the God of the Bible. So wherever there's slavery of some kind, whether that's actual practical slavery, whether that's in slavery or uh, being enslaved to habits or emotions, like wh wherever you see slavery show up, the God of the Bible is showing up there to bring about liberation. From day one, he's been about freedom. So think about, he creates a universe, creates an earth, creates a garden, and then basically tells Adam and Eve, go play. Like, do, do whatever you want in there. There's one, only one rule. He tells them to have babies. Like, go have fun in this garden, do whatever you want. From the first moment of our rebellion. You ever sat back and thought about God's response to our rebellion, the first thing that comes out of his mouth after Adam and Eve turned from him isn't how dare you, isn't I'll get you, isn't I'm coming for you. The first thing he says is, where are you? You see them hiding and, and God immediately is trying to woo them out of hiding. Immediately he moves to cover our bondage to fear, our shame, our guilt. Immediately he promises that he will undo what we have done, and that a son will be given to us. And you just follow the story from there through the Old Testament, and you'll see over and over a God committed to the freedom of his people, whether it's, to, it's rescuing Noah, setting him on a good land, telling him to multiply, rescuing Israel from Egypt, gives them good land, teaches them how to live free. Have you ever thought about what it'd be like to be in a culture that had been in slavery for 400 years, where all you knew about work was work more, work harder, work faster, and then God shows up, and the first command he gives about your life, the first few commands are about how you relate to God, the first commandment, the Ten Commandments, the first one he gives about how to live your life is to take a day off. You imagine how unsettling that would be if you were a slave, and it's like, here's my big desire for you. First of all, Take a day off. What does that reveal about the heart of the God of the Bible? The story of the Bible in a lot of ways is the story of moving people from bondage to freedom. So Christians are people who take that story and go to places wherever there's bondage, wherever there's lostness, wherever there's darkness. You can't read the Bible and conclude that God is incapable of producing free people. You can't read the Bible and conclude that God doesn't care about freedom and about liberating people, which is easy to preach and get fired up about. And so we're going to send missionaries, and we're going to do all these great things that look cool. Um, it's, it's easy to talk about that in the big picture conceptual character of God kind of ways. Uh, but when that, I don't know, that reality comes home, or we start looking at 
our own individual lives. How many people do you know uh, that walk around with a sense of freedom and power about them? You're like, I don't know what that lady's doing, but she sure seems free. She's, she sure seems like she's walking in confidence and strength. How many Christians do you know that walk with an air of authority about them? Like they are divine royalty in the kingdom of God, destined to rule the universe. Most of the people I walk around are very scared about the money running out, all the what-ifs in life, very scared about what if they find out I'm one of those kinds of Christians and then nobody likes me. We, are we not a people that believe God is so in control and so sovereign and we go to bed so worried at night? You know what I mean? We look at our own lives and so many of us are racked with guilt. And maybe you actually pay attention when you read the Bible and you see how God sets all of these people free and shortly after they tend to relapse back into slavery. But even with Israel, you know, it's not too long after God's rescued them. And you remember the whole like frogs and plagues and fiery tornadoes, parting the red, like pretty amazing stuff. And it's not too long after that, that like, you know, it wasn't so bad in Egypt, right? The food was a lot better there. We had variety. Like, it's not too long, it seems like, before the human heart longs for slavery again. You, you know this in your own life. What's the thing you've been trying to quit for a long time? Right? You know it by now. That was enough time for you. Why do you keep doing that? Why do you keep doing that? You don't want to do it. You know you shouldn't do it. It's bringing destruction to your life and the lives of other people. So what's the deal? What is it about slavery that you love so much? Living free is so hard, not because of God, but because of us. Not because of anything God has or hasn't done, but for the most part, for most of us, it's because of what we've lived. It's our own stories. It's our own decisions. It's our own patterns within relationship. And that breeds this deep skepticism about whether or not God would ever use somebody like me. In this section of Galatians, Paul is, is moving on from, in the first 10 verses, we went through this last week, he asserts his authority. Why should we listen to him? Who are you to say these kinds of things? And he begins discussing the nature of the gospel. And right at the heart of this is the idea of freedom. Last, year, last week, we talked about Galatians as a book all about freedom. And now, after unpacking some of these huge theological concepts, he doesn't move into like a lesson or here's the way to change. Here's the five steps to be more free in light of who Jesus is. And instead, he starts telling his story. And this is, again, Paul knows the Christian life is messy. Like some of you in here, the dumb stuff you've done in life happened after you became a Christian, right? You don't have to amen that, I guess, because you don't want to out yourself here in church. But like most of the people, especially if you're like me and you became a Christian through some youth ministry in high school or something, most of life's curveballs came after you became a Christian. For most of us, the... the the most serious suffering we will endure, the deepest disappointments, the deepest pains will come after we're Christians. And if you've been sold a message that if you come to Jesus and life's going to be great, he's going to fix everything. What's it mean to be a Christian? You're happy every day and golly, things just work out for you. And then those things happen. Life gets hard. It can be completely disorienting. And in some ways, it can, it can shipwreck your faith. Paul knows the Christian life is messy. It's not paint by numbers. There are no easy formulas. 
And so when he comes to places like this, and you'll see this throughout his letters, he rarely outlines a nice and neat process for change. Paul very rarely gives you like self-help Christianity. The six things every Christian needs to know to have a dynamic whatever, you know, like these blog posts and stuff that we write now. Instead, he tells stories and almost always what he'll tell is his story because by telling his story, he's teaching us how to look at our own lives. He's teaching us how to see our lives uh, in a new way or in a new light. Um, Not so much in, in terms of what we've done or who we think we are, but rather who God is and what God has done. And so this, this morning, what, what Paul is revealing for us here is a way out from our past. And, and by a way out, I mean a, a way to be free from our slavery to our guilt, to uh, our history of failure or what we perceive to be inadequacies. And so listen, this is not a how-to formula. Uh, I, I, I more so want you to hear an invitation into a life of power and a life of freedom. And if you're like, power and freedom, what do you mean? Just imagine what, what would your life look like if that tape that plays in your mind shut off for like a week? If all of those things that have happened, all of those skepticisms went away, what would you do? Now, the first way I see the gospel freeing us from this here in this verse in Galatians is there's a shift in, in the main character of the story. Um, to come to Jesus is to simultaneously reduce and enlarge your vision for your life. Um, There's lots of kind of internal seemingly contradictions in this. So first, to come to Jesus is to say that the main character of your life is Jesus, not you. The second movement, though, is that it means that your life is a part of a story that's far greater than you could imagine. So your, your life has less to do with you than you think, but it's part of a far better story than what you're trying to pull off by keeping yourself as the center of your story. Uh, So here's how Paul starts off in verse 11, showing us this. He says, dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand the gospel message I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. I received my message from no human source and no one taught me. Instead, I received it by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. It's hard to read this and think Paul is the big deal here, right? Like Paul's saying, I didn't come up with this. I didn't study my way into this. No, what happened here is God revealed this to me. What I preach isn't based on human stuff. What I preach is based on something that God has given to me, that Jesus has revealed to me. This is a, one way Paul is saying your life is about God and it's not about you. The message he's preaching is not based on something he's invented. He didn't go away and study and come up with, I don't know, like this new discipleship strategy that we've been missing for the last 2,000 years. And if we would just follow this, we would go do all those things. He's like, no, I'm not preaching anything I came up with. I'm talking to you about Jesus. I received this from Jesus. So I think the first movement of experiencing freedom from your past is you have to see Jesus as the main character of your life. And what all will that mean? I'm not really sure. What needs to switch in your life? I'm not really sure, but, but you have to learn to see that your life is wrapped up in the story of God. Um, your story is wrapped up, is integrated, is held by God's story. You, you have to see that ultimately the hero and main character of your life is Jesus and not you. Or the goal is at the end of your life, Jesus would look wonderful, not you. Your, fundamentally, your story is about furthering the story of God, not about you. And then simultaneously, so 
here's what happens in churches a lot of the time, is we'll hear something like that. Or we'll preach the gospel of grace and forgiveness and say, I'm forgiven. And so we split our lives into like before conversion and after conversion. And so you have, which is, I think it's fair. Like that's an important time in your life to know when you became a Christian. But after becoming a Christian, we pretend like everything that happened before we became a Christian doesn't matter. And so we shut all of that down and act like none of that happened. Or even worse, we hear the message that our life is about God and not about me. So we begin thinking that we don't matter at all. We stop thinking about ourselves at all. Or if we think about our lives, our dreams, our desires, we start feeling like we're selfish or maybe we're arrogant. If that were true, you realize how much easier it would have been for Jesus to just stay on earth and keep preaching himself? If you don't matter at all, why would God go to the trouble of integrating you into his story and his mission? Have you watched all the dumb things pastors are doing lately? All the dumb things like Christian authors are doing lately? And you realize God could have come up with another way of building his church, of moving his mission forward. Instead of just cutting us off and taking it on his own, God, to further his story somehow, shows up into your story. Yes, Paul preached God's gospel, but it was also Paul who was preaching, right? And who did God choose to go and preach? He chose Paul to go do this. So just because you're not the main character of the story, don't make the mistake of thinking that means that there's no room for you in the story at all, right? Like your life is about something so much bigger than you could come up with just on your own. The gospel of Jesus tells us our stories are not what we think they are, both in terms of what we've done and how God would use us. No matter what you've lived, what you've done, coming to Jesus will require dramatic reinterpretation of your life. Dramatic reinterpretation of what you've lived, what you've done, what's been done to you. And this begins by putting him right in the middle of your life. He's got to be the main character. What will this mean for you specifically, practically? I'm not sure. But you will not experience freedom from your past, that dominating voice giving you all the reasons for your failure until you say, the purpose of my life will be Jesus. And, and from there, something very difficult happens. Look at what Paul says. He says, you know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. This is some of the worst stuff about his life. And he just comes out and says it. He's not hiding it. He's not whitewashing it. He's not spinning it. He's just saying it like it is. Um, This is a man who has learned how to own his story. What do I mean by owning a story? When you, owning your story means accepting the truth of what you've lived, not pretending like it didn't happen. Maybe you've heard, you know, this is kind of like old Christian wisdom. The things you don't own in life will end up owning you. The things you try to pretend like didn't happen, the things you try to neglect and ignore, those things end up driving you. To own your story is to own the truth of what you've lived. And this is dangerous in our culture. And so my parents' generation, I'm 35, my parents' generation, you know, to be a good church person meant you showed up in your suit, right? And everything was fine. We're smiling and we're happy. 
And that's what it meant to be a good Christian. All the kids grew up frustrated by that because we would get in the car and mom and dad would, right? Like everyone looks good and talks good, but then you get in the car and everyone's angry and upset. So now the 35-year-olds are like, we're going to be authentic, right? We're going to be genuine. And what does that mean? It means we always talk about what a mess we are. So it means you show up to community and be like, oh my gosh, I hate my job. My wife and I are fighting. I hate my kids. Like, oh, life is so hard. I'm just like praying. Or, you know what I mean? Like, and what you got to see is that it's the same thing with a different outfit on. Like, both people are, try, are, are driven by asking themselves, what will it take to look good in this culture? What will it take to be impressive? And the previous culture said, well, actually look good, right? Dress up, Sunday best. Our culture says, if you want to be a really good Christian, be a mess. Because that's authentic. That's honest. Because life is hard. We can see the appeal in both of these. And so if we talk about owning our story as being like telling it like it is, there's a real temptation there that we're just playing the game of trying to look like we're good Christians. And Paul, Paul shows us this. This is not a superficial acknowledgement. This is deep, soul-level owning. So look at what Paul does. He says, it pleased God to reveal a son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. When this happened, I did not rush out to consult with any human being. When this happened, I didn't go to community group and let everybody know about what a mess I am. When this happened, I didn't get on Facebook and tell everybody about like, oh, I just need Jesus so much. So a couple of things here. Despite everything he lived, he's able to say it pleased God. You see that pleased word? It made God happy to reveal his son to Paul. This isn't cold sovereignty. This is just kind of like a side note nugget. It stood out to me. Uh, it made God happy, wreck that he was, for God to bring Paul into his family. You might be able to imagine some of the internal contradictions that that created in the life of Paul. Maybe you feel some of this. On the one hand, you feel gratitude that God would save you, but on the other, you're very confused because why would he save you? And the way that shows up is when we say things like, God loves me, but he doesn't like me. Or like, I'm saved, but I'm not useful. Like, God would bring me in, but he doesn't want to use me. Or for those of you who struggle feeling like God is perpetually disappointed in you. We, and this makes sense. Paul knew the things that he had done. And it makes us very uncomfortable to experience this kind of love and forgiveness. And so what many of us will do is with those contradictions, we'll jump to a pastor, we'll jump to a new book, we'll jump to a friend to try to encourage us. But Paul says, I didn't go anywhere. I did not rush out to consult with any human being. Instead, what does he do? Instead, I went away into Arabia, and later I returned to the city of Damascus. At the moment of his conversion, being, being brought safely home spiritually by the one he was persecuting. How does Paul respond? He goes to the desert. He went to Arabia. He went to be alone with God. And go bust your brain for the next month trying to figure out what did Paul do the 13 years after he became a Christian. And we're not really sure because he wasn't out there for the sake of his blog. He wasn't out there for the sake of the next book deal. Or like, beware of the people. Do you see this happening all the time in our culture? A pastor cheats on his wife and he gets kicked out of his church. And a month later, he's on tour talking about how to heal from adultery. The abusers who are fired 
And all of a sudden, they have this great insight to go teach the lesson. That's not owning. That is not giving space to do what God needs to do in us to reconcile these failures. What does Paul do? He goes to the desert to hear what he needed to hear. I'm begging you to be skeptical of anyone who processes tragedy quickly. Be skeptical of anyone who processes deep failure quickly. What does Paul do? He goes to the desert. Owning your story requires space for reflection, space for, to do business with God. What do you mean? I don't really know. You have to put yourself in a place where you need God. You may not necessarily have to go to a desert, but you got to go somewhere where you're quiet and solitary and God can show up for you and care for you. And this does not happen quickly. We know before Paul left Arabia and Damascus was at least three years. So please, like now's not the time to launch your ministry after two weeks or like to go on the new conference circuit. You know what I'm saying? We see this with abusers in our culture and society all the time. The bottom drops out and I'm back on tour by the fall with this new message about all I've learned in the last three months. That's nonsense. Owning your story is not saying you're a mess. Owning your story isn't even being able to say some specifics about why you think your life is a mess. Have you gone to Arabia? Have you gone and given yourself space to let God show you all you've lost or all your failures or all the pain that's been done to you and have you integrated that into your life? I I don't know what this looks like for you specifically, but what I do know is none of us are used to living as supporting caste. For many of us, we've spent 30 years thinking we're the main character of this amazing story that's going to change the world. And it's not easy to say, no, at best, I'm a supporting actress. At best, I'm a supporting actor. This show is not about me. And even more deeply, I know none of us are used to forgiveness. Like none of us are used to this kind of grace and love that would say the gospel is big enough that it can take a murderer and make him a missionary. Most, I just, I don't know anybody who's, who's comfortable with that level of love and acceptance. It's not natural for us. To own our stories means we need space for God to sink his gospel deeply into our souls that we might experience his love. And something fascinating happens in the midst of this. Watch what Paul does here. It says, then three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter. I cannot tell you how much I love this verse. Because it doesn't say, I thought about it for an afternoon and then I went and wrote a blog post, right? I thought about it for an afternoon and then I went and, you know, three years. And then he went and to talk to Peter. I spent this, I earned the paycheck this week, guys. Right here, this get to know, I spent about six hours on this word. It's where our English word history comes from. And at, here's what I think he's saying here. Then three years later, I went to Jerusalem to swap stories with Peter. Um, I went up there to share personal histories with one another. He didn't go up to get instruction from Peter. He didn't go up to get permission from Peter. He went up to share his story with Peter. So your story isn't owned until you've learned how to share that story. And think about the power here uh, as he goes. What do you think it felt like for Paul to hear all Peter had done and see him leading in Jerusalem? You, that, like there had to be a moment where Paul looked at Peter and was like, you did what to Jesus? I mean, you did what to Jesus? And you're still here. What about for Peter? Seeing what Paul had done, knowing what Paul had done, and watching what Jesus was doing 
in Paul. When you own your story and share your story, you continue the process of reinterpreting it because you'll, you'll begin to see all the ways that God uses all of you for his purposes. And by all of you, I mean your emotions. I mean your physical body. I mean your decisions. I mean your relationships. Everything about you is being held within the story of God. And sometimes it's just hard to see that on our own. As someone else is sharing their story or you share your story with someone else, you get to see the grace of God in your life in ways that can be very difficult for you to see on your own. And this is one of the ways the gospel becomes deeply integrated into our lives. It's not just a confession. And and here's what I mean. Paul had done awful stuff in his life, worse than most of you. And yet before that verse we read earlier, that it pleased God to adopt Peter or Paul into his family, look at what Paul is able to say. He says, even before I was born, it pleased God to bring me into his family. You realize what Paul is saying here? Everything I've lived, none of this surprises God. Everything I've done, everything I've lived, God chose me before I was even born, knowing all of this would happen. This is a way that Paul is looking at his life and saying, everything I've lived is somehow wrapped up in the story of the grace of God. What's been good, what's been ugly, what's been painful, what's been beautiful, somehow all of this is being held in the story of God. Paul doesn't have the answers. And please, There will be things that happen in your life that you will not explain and you can't explain. But when the love of Christ sinks deeply into your soul and becomes real, you're able to look at all you've lived and say, somehow all of this is being held by God. And instead of being enslaved to our pasts, we begin to be set free by it. There's a new character, a new main character. We begin to own our stories and share our stories, and then we trust God as he writes a new story for us. Um, And this is a little bit confusing, I think. Uh, So let's try to imagine for a second, is this another funny thing that we pastors do? And like when I'm talking about pastors, I want you to know like this is my profession, right? Like this is my tribe that I'm talking about. These are the things we do where, uh, you know, there's a new mission opportunity, and so we talk strategy a lot. At Sojourn, for a long time, the Trinity's been Father, Son, and Holy Strategy, and so we're going to figure out, you know, do our gospel judo for where we're going to get into the mission. And so think about this for a second. Paul becomes a Christian. He's like the best Jewish person that's ever lived. He'll say in his letters, I'm better at Judaism than anyone who has ever lived. How good at religion do you have to be to be able to say something like that? He's like, I'm a better Jew than you were. I follow the rule better than you were. He probably had the whole Bible memorized at a very young age. If we were sitting in the pastor's strategy session and Paul becomes a Christian, I think most of us would say, that's the guy to send to the Jews. Like, who better than someone who knows their faith in and out, who grew up in it, who had a a high level of authority and respect in it. He can, that'll be like a Trojan horse. Paul will go in there and he'll convert the whole religion. I mean, he is like, the MVP of Judaism, and he becomes a Christian. So shouldn't we send him? You guys see what I'm saying? Just nod if you think I'm not crazy, right? Like, that's what makes sense. And Paul seemed to think so too, because he kept going and preaching to the Jews. Then one time, this is in the book of Acts. You can go read a bunch about Paul's story in the book of Acts. He's praying, like he's pumping himself up in the temple because he's going to go preach to the Jews. And God gives him a vision and says, Paul, get out of Jerusalem. No one's going to listen to you here. And Paul says to God, no, I'm going to preach, right? Like, no, God, you sent me here, remember? And God's like, no, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. 
Which is like, listen, the Gentiles were the ones that Paul was taught to hate and keep at arm's length his whole life. That's not the strategic decision. Do you see the reversal? Do you see the way God will flip things upside down to make it clear to us that Jesus is the main character? Paul will persecute the church from a place of authority in Judaism. God's like, check this out. Check, check, check. Well, 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 watch. I'm going to make that guy one of the big leaders in the church. He's going to write most of the New Testament, and I'm not going to send him to the Jews. I'm going to send him to this people that he was racist and hated, right? Like, I'm, what? And you think we look at that, and it's like, man, wow, what a guy Paul is. Look at Peter, an uneducated fisherman. How do you feel about people who didn't finish high school and fish all day? And God's like, you're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this, you guys. I'm going to take Peter, and I'm going to make him the leader of the religious elite in the most educated city in the world. What? Why? Because I can. Make it clear that it's not you, you people that are figuring this whole thing out. This is my story, God says, and I will do what I want with who I want. Following your story Trusting God with your story means seeing your past as an invitation to be used by God in unexpected ways. And here, this isn't absolutely true, but I've found it to be true often that the place of your greatest guilt or your greatest shame will eventually become a mission field of sorts for you. Often a place where we carry deep wounds and deep hurt. Some way God uses that to send us to unexpected places. And that's one of the most beautiful ways our, our, our past uh, stops being a hindrance and starts being an encouragement and empowerment when we see the ways that God is using us. He brings redemption in upside down ways to make clear that he's the main character. A man who hated Gentiles becomes the missionary to the Gentiles. Like on and on we could go. And this starts with a God who goes about an upside down mission, right? Like the God of the universe who's been sinned against, rebelled against, cheated on, comes to make things right with his people. And how does he do it? As a baby. Like, what does that reveal about the heart of the father? That he shows up as a baby, not as a conquering king, not in authority and glory and majesty with armies and trumpets, but as a baby. And then this righteous man is killed like a criminal. And then to seal our redemption, to secure our justification, a lifeless body is brought back to life. This is the end result of the story. Oh, I skipped that. Yeah, after that, I went north into the province. Those are, those are Gentile churches, y'all. Like, that's where Paul gets sent, to Gentile churches, not the Jerusalem that he wanted to. And here's how it worked out. All they knew was that people were saying, the one who used to persecute us is now preaching the very faith he tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. All these people knew about Paul was that he, these Christians, they, they knew that he tried to shut down the church, but now he was preaching the gospel. And you see this last line, they praised God because of me. That's when, that's when the shackles from your past really start falling off. Go to Arabia. Own your story share your story, follow Jesus to unexpected places, and eventually you will see that they praised God because of me. Yes, everything you've lived, you know what? God still used you. The places of this hurt and this pain that you went back to, trusting God, and now people have experienced Jesus. Lives will change. 
People will experience Jesus because of you. Could he have done it another way? Yes. Is he capable of doing it another way? Absolutely. How did he do it? If you're willing, he will use you. And you'll see that your past is the place where God's redemptive power changed you. It won't be a source of guilt or shame anymore, but of boasting in the goodness, the power, and the love of Jesus Christ for you. We anchor ourselves in this reality, um, the hope of this promise, by remembering the night he was betrayed when he took a loaf of bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this. Remember what I've done for you. Um, If you're worried about have you done too much, how how will your guilt be resolved? You need to look at the body of Christ broken for you. You're not in trouble before God. You're not condemned before God because the Lamb of God was slain for you. After the meal, Jesus took a cup of wine. He said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. I'm not sure, I'm not sure a lifetime is enough time for us to believe this. What keeps us safe in the arms of God? What secures our promise that our story is being woven into the story of God? It's not your religious performance. It's not your efforts. It's the blood of Christ shed for you, which means you'll be safe all the way home. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it, and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, you can come celebrate communion as you're ready.